Today's guest is a sociology lecturer at the University of Albany for the past six years. He teaches Introduction to Sociology, Social Problems, Race, and Ethnicity, Research Methods, and the Sociology of Sports. He holds a Master's Degree in Applied Science, Research, and a Bachelor's in Rhetoric and Communications. Phil Lewis, welcome to Papa Bear Hikes. Good to be here. Thanks for for inviting me. So, Phil, we're going into a territory here on our podcast, Papa Bear Hikes, that's a little new for us. Uh, We're we're talking about an aspect of the outdoors that we have yet to touch on. So before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I have a a background in sports. I played sports like a lot of uh, my friends did in New York City. It was almost uh, required that you did. Uh, So I played a lot of sports. And then uh, when I went to college, I had a, uh, a co- at University of Albany, where I now teach, uh, I had a chance to um, take some courses with some of the coaches at the university. So I actually got to take college courses with uh, actual, you know, actual sports content. And I always said to myself, gee, if I ever teach, I'd love to do that uh, in my courses. So fast forward a few years. And uh, although I do have an interest in urban social problems, and research methods and things like that. Uh, my my main area of interest is in, in sociology of sports and how sports is a microcosm of the larger society. I had an opportunity to broadcast minor league baseball, so I got a taste of what you know organized and professional sports was like. And it's been something that's been very well received by the uh, student body. Uh, University of Albany is now a Division One school, even though it used when I was there it was Division Three school. So. Um, what of my research and interest has been in the relationship between sports and society. So your teaching is what do you, what are some of the findings you're having there? Now we focus here on outdoor sports and I, and, and, and your expertise, your area of expertise, we'd probably be talking more about non-competitive eco type sports. Well, actually, my my main area of interest in sports is in head injuries and and some of the dysfunctional parts of sports. But part of a 15-week course is about a lot of different things. And we do talk uh, quite a bit about, and and this is actually somewhat related to some of the injuries and head injuries that have been been, uh, highlighted in sports over the last few years, is that there's a, a smaller and smaller pool of youth sports participation. And because of that, there's been more and more interest in non-competitive sports, more recreational activities. Um, but the the main interest, the main reasons why uh, young athletes, uh, young participants in sports have either moved away or been taken away by their parents is because of a number of, of factors. One is uh, the fear of, of injuries, um, something like uh, there's just, just a tremendous, inc- there's been a tremendous increase in the number of emergency room, uh, visits by youth athletes. Um, there has been, uh, increased study on, on hand injuries and chronic, um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is been talked a lot about in professional sports, but not studied nearly as much in youth sports. And a lot of jurisdictions now are looking to ban, uh, football and contact sports for 
for young people under uh, 14 years old. So that's also creating a bit of a vacuum where some states aren't even allowing kids to play uh, tackle football. Uh, there's also surveys that uh, demonstrate that kids aren't having as much fun playing youth sports because of the pressure. Uh, they're not enjoying the experience they're having with coaches. Uh, and there's been tremendous amounts of cost uh, involved with sports, youth sports more so than before, because there are these travel teams and these all-star teams and, you know, parents are paying in the areas of $15,000 a year to take their kids across the country or at least in their region to play these weekend uh, tournaments and things like that. So uh, that's created imbalances, uh, you know, inequities in, in opportunities for kids in youth sports and the fact that they're not enjoying the games as much. So the activity levels in most sports, with some exceptions, lacrosse and, and soccer has had some increases, but uh, baseball and the mainstream sports have not, uh, have created an opportunity for uh, parents and, and kids to say, maybe I want a, a recreation, <clears throat> but I don't, I don't want the, the pressures of competitiveness. So they're moved into the areas. There are several areas. One is the general area is eco sports, but there's also action within that there's action sports and adventure sports. And then there's been extreme sports, which is where you hear about some of the uh, traumatic brain injuries and some of the, the more um, serious type of injuries. So most people stay away from those, although you see those on television every once in a while. But eco sports, action sports, and adventure sports are where uh, kids and people in general can enjoy the outdoors, uh, can, can, can have recreation, uh, get their steps in, uh, you know, to, to, to minimize it, but uh, also uh, be active. Yeah, we're from the same generation, Phil, and you grew up in New York City. I grew up right across the river in New Jersey, just outside, just outside of Newark. And I noticed there was there was a shift. You know, when we were kids, you could go have a pickup game of basketball, football, baseball, and the kids were in charge. Right. Some right. of the best games, most fun you had were was that lack of supervision uh, where it was the kids. And, and I always made this comparison as a scout leader on a number of occasions. I would say, you know what, kind of, you know, you, you, you've touched on the the uh, the brain injuries. But my observation is we could be zapping these kids of their ability to develop leadership skills, social skills when there, there's this uh, over the top amount of structure involved. and so much emphasis on the competitiveness of it. Uh, so that's why I'm listening. I'm saying, well, that's, it's, I'm, I'm very, it's very interesting what you're saying. Cause I'm thinking back to my youth and compare and comparing it to what I saw with my kids and with kids and scouts. Uh, I just think that, um, yeah, there, there's a lot to be said for that. And, and as a scout leader, I had a number of parents say to me that they weren't allowing their kids to play a lot of these contact sports. Do you, do you think that this there's, definitely been much more awareness brought to the, not just the short term, but the long term effects of head trauma. When we were kids, you know, you got your bell rung, you know, as long as you can repeat your name and say how many fingers you had up, you were told to go back out on the field. But uh, how much of a part is that awareness playing now, you think, in, in kids maybe going away from playing the contact sports or parents, not just not allowing their kids to play contact sports? Well, as, as much as known about it over the last few years, uh, there's there's even more that's not known about it. Uh, the study of CTE is, is considered to be in its infancy, even though there's all this working going on at the Boston Univer University 
brain center. And uh, the, the issue is, and it, you know, I don't want to necessarily go off on a tangent about brain injuries, but um, <clears throat> the only way that CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, can be confirmed, which is effectively dementia. Okay, so it's the same thing as Alzheimer's or dementia for, for much younger people, um, and, it's, and it's degenerative. Um, the only way it can be confirmed is on a on autopsy at this point. So there's very little that's known. The first two or three concussions that some young athlete is having, and if they've had two diagnosed concussions, they probably had five total concussions <clears throat> because even concussions are more difficult to, to uh, diagnose. So the issue is very little is known, but they're, they're inching their way towards diagnostic tests where uh, CTE can be confirmed in early stages amongst living people. And to me, and this is something I talk to my class about all the time, to me, once that day comes, and it's not far off, that some doctor will not just say to a parent or, or an athlete, you had a concussion, they'll say, your stage one CTE now at 18 years old or 14 years old or 21 years old. I think that's the end of the, you know, really sports as contact sports as we know it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that may very well just push people into ego sports, even more, you know, at an exponential uh, pace, because at that point, no doctor is going to be able to sign off on a kid going back to, to play at that point. Right. So, we may start to see this shift from the competitive contact sports to, well, in layman's terms, getting kids just to enjoy the outdoors more. And is that pretty accurate? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, also because television and social media now can cover uh, or, or document uh, more of these type of activities than before, uh, now they become much more attractive. Uh, to people you know it's not just hiking it's rock climbing and kayaking and snowboarding and water skiing and canoeing and scuba diving and so a lot, a lot of things that are are attractive to people that maybe they didn't get a chance to really see before uh, because you know why world of sports didn't cover you know uh, snowboarding or very rarely they, would they do that <clears throat> but now there's so much more bandwidth that now suddenly you can see how much fun those those activities might be. So those are considered eco sports, but you know there are other variations to it. As I mentioned, you know mountain climbing has doubled each of the last five years. Uh, people just going to national parks has increased by more than a hundred percent over about a thirty year period. There are forty four million uh, people that have self identified as runners, and eight million who identify themselves as hardcore runners who run at least 120 days a year. So it's not just one thing. That's the other part about it. It's not that you just have to be a runner or kids just have to turn to non-competitive running, uh, which a lot of them who may be very skilled at running don't want to have to be competitive track and field athletes, but now they can be long distance runners for their own personal bests or just to, for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. We, we saw a number spike last year with the pandemic with people getting outdoors, but I'm listening to you talking about over the last five years, et cetera, about pe more people getting outside. And I've seen that. I've, 
I've been doing outdoor activities my entire life. And you know, I've seen an increase, not just since the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, more and more people were getting out and enjoying the outdoors. Uh, I mean, you yeah, added benefit of if you choose to be a hiker or just somebody that likes to run, your age or getting out of school doesn't stop you from doing it. It's something you right. can enjoy your whole life. Um, right. So on, on the back to the youth end of this, I know that there's steps being taken to with, with protective gear. Uh, but we're finding that, you know, they're, they're, I mean, just like with motorcycle accidents, people wear motorcycle, they wear the helmets, but it's not a guarantee. You're not going to have a, a head injury. Uh, but I think back to my parents and grandparents generation where sports weren't as organized at a young age, but you still had high level, high quality college sports and uh, professional sports, uh, specifically baseball, still is attracting the greatest athletes available. Do you see a possible shift of of that going back, like a step back to maybe where we were even pre-World War II, where kids are finding their, their place athletically, maybe in high school or even college? Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure this is going to answer your question, but what I can tell you is that there's been much more emphasis on playing multiple sports. And even if it's not two competitive sports, at least getting into different activities, because something like 50% of the injuries that are taking place in high school and college are uh, athletes who are specializing in just one sport. There seems to be some benefit uh, physiologically to utilizing different muscle groups or not overusing certain muscle groups. So, um, you know, I think even uh, athletes who are playing some competitive sports uh, would benefit if if they can't play a second sport to run or to uh, hike or to, um, you know, swim or or do things that are not necessarily competitive. Right. You reduce the chances of repetitive action type sport, uh, injuries, right. Repetitive motions, uh, injuries that, uh, and, you know, sometimes we don't think, you know, we think, you know, using a keyboard on a computer, but yes, even in sports, if you're that same action nonstop, you know, constantly, you know, if you, and, you know, I, I don't like doing this and I want to sound like I'm judging anyone, but I'd seen it with one of my kids when he was playing little league baseball, that this emphasis that, you know, my kid's going to play baseball and year round, I mean, baseball went from a spring sport to, They've got leagues from spring right through until it's too cold to play, it seems like. And I can't imagine that's good for a developing body that just, you know, the repetitive motions that go along with playing baseball. No, I mean, there's pretty strong data that playing multiple sports is better or not, you know, focusing on just one sport uh, in terms of injuries. I mean, I I think the data is pretty clear on that. As far as uh, the psychological side of this, yeah, you know, when the because you know we've mentioned there's more of an emphasis on the competitive side of this now at a younger age, much younger age than than in previous generations. For, so, from a psychological standpoint, getting outdoor into a non-competitive ecotype sport must have its benefits, allowing the a youth to unplug and you know, hey, I'm just I'm just going to have fun, you know, whether it's learning how to rock climb or going on a kayaking or canoeing trip. We'll be back after a quick break. 
You ever think about what might be in the water you're drinking every time you fill up your water bottles while you're in the outdoors? I try not to, and I really don't because I use Sawyer water filters. Sawyer filter technology, because of their high standards, every filter is individually tested three times through the process. I've been using the permethrin product for years now to protect me from, well, quite frankly, ticks, and the picaridin to keep the flies at bay. Don't let bad water, insects, or a tick bite cut your trip short or even ruin it. Use Sawyer products. Go to your local outdoor retailer and ask for Sawyer products, whether it's a water filter, insect repellent, they'll likely to have it. You can also go to Sawyer's website and read more about these incredible, high quality products that they offer those of us who enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, I mean, there have been actually, I was going to mention, <clears throat> there's two books that I'm aware of in this academic books by sociologists who've kind of documented these, these kind of outdoor experiences. One, one I know fairly well and one I don't. The one that, it's, that you just brought to mind is, is a book called uh, Walking on the Wild Side by a sociologist named Christy Fondren at Marshall University. And she followed, she did an ethnography. She followed first 46 men and women who, who ran, who got across the Appalachian Trail, which is over 2,000 miles long, and is something like going across, uh, it's equivalent to going up Everest, Everest and back like 16 times. So it's really, it's really long. And she, she decided, you know, she, most of us in sociology are quanti well, a lot of us in sociology are, are quantitative uh, uh, analysts. And she, she wrote in the forward that, you know, there was really nothing to count, you know, do you count how many sneakers you go through? Do you count how many bottles of water? That doesn't really give you much of the experience. And she just said that it was largely, you can only largely appreciate these things qualitatively, which, you know, gets to your, your issue of, of psychology. I mean, how much are you really getting out of the experience of, of uh, you know, of going across that kind of distance? And she actually did. She spent 40 days, you know, herself at the Delaware Water Gap and another 33 days going between North Carolina and Virginia. And, and really, she discussed the experience and she discussed the psychological, you know, benefits of it. So, you know, there, there are some, some attempts to try to, uh, you know, capture this uh, academically. And then uh, a friend of mine who I, who I taught with at, at Skidmore College uh, just wrote a book uh, fairly recently. I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was an article about it in today's time, Albany Times Union about barefoot runners and the physiology of the fact that children run barefoot and they do just fine. And ultimately your foot really, your feet really uh, respond very well to running without any sneakers on. And a lot of the fact that, you know, people are so interested in expensive sneakers or, or marketing poised by uh, shoe companies. And he also discussed, you know, the, the history of barefoot runners in the Olympics and marathons and, all kinds of, uh, but it, largely it was qualitative, and, mm -hmm. and just the, the 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 psychological experiences of it, the the joy of it, the you know the distraction, you know, the, the distraction you get from from the rest of the world. So you know, there's been some attempts to discuss this sociologically in, in literature. I haven't done a whole lot of research on it. I've had an interest in it, um, but you know, my own personal experiences again to, to go back on that. Uh, my wife references as my mental health break every year i go out for my two and a half to three week backpacking trip oh, really and, nice. and, and that's exactly what it is i go out and you know 
if I, I, I don't have a set amount of miles I'm going to hike. I just, I, I do my research to know what campsites are available or uh, what towns are nearby if I need to get off the trail. But once I put that backpack on and step on the trail, I'm not really thinking about much. And I just, it's, it, I, you know, it's, it, you get to live like, I don't know, very primal or I always joke and say, I feel like a vagabond, right? I'm just going to walk to my next campsite. And all I got to worry about is making my dinner, get up in the morning, whenever, whatever time I get up and cook my breakfast and hike until I'm finished hiking for the day. Yeah. You know, one branch of sociology is this, it's, it's, it's connected to psychology. It's called social psychology. It's a, it's a, it's a perspective called symbolic interactionism. And one of the great symbolic interactionists, Irving Goffman said, that we all have, we, we don't have any true self, that we have a series of masks. And wherever we are and whatever circumstances we're in, that's our true self at the time. And, you know, it sounds to me from what you're describing, like that's yourself in that circumstance. And that's who you are then. And when you're in another environment, you know, you're, you're, you're a different, you have a different self, but certainly uh, it sounds like a, uh, a substantial part of you and other people that, that would have those kinds of uh, immersive experiences. Yeah, I often reference the trail, and I use that in a very general sense. It could be any trail you're on, but I call it the great equalizer because we're not putting on our jacket and tie and walking out there or our expensive shoes. When, we, when we're out there at the end of the day and we get to a campsite or a lean-to, we're all just a bunch of smelly hikers. And right. it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, or a student, where you came from, who you are. We're all just the same out there. And I, I think that, right, it, I think it gives all of us when we do that an opportunity to, to take off all the facades that we may have to carry through life and, right, and we can be our true selves. Right. And that's, that's largely what he said. He said, depending on our circumstances, you know, that's who we are. And the norms, you know, are very different in different social, social circumstances. And uh, I'm sure you're, you're the, what's right and wrong and, uh, appropriate in those circumstances, you know, to, to maybe, you know, be a little more smelly in those situations than you might be at, uh, you know, at a work environment are, 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 you know, relative to where you are. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that sounds like it cuts through the social stratification a little bit. I've had the opportunity to hike with, um, people who are in the, the bubble on the Appalachian trail of through hikers. And when you have the largest group that are making their way up from Georgia and, Going into town, I, I was at the occasion, let me see, three different times I went into town with a group of Appalachian Trail through hikers. And it is really interesting to just kind of sit back and put on your behavioral psychology hat or sociology or psychology and, and watch the way the people are looking at the hikers and the way the hikers are behaving and kind of in their own world. Uh it's it's amazing I, I to watch what happens yeah. and I think that it happens you know, when, when people are hiking the Appalachian Trail there by the time they get up this far into New Jersey New York Vermont they've been out there for months already right so yeah they've kind of um, I think they've become so comfortable in their skin so to speak at that point that they're kind of not even paying attention to the looks they're getting from people when they're you know when a guy walks by with a big beard with dirty clothes and a little bit of a stink right. to him. Right, which would be a social norm in that circumstance, and no one would think twice about it. Right, like today, neither you know, none of those people would probably think of going out to the Walmart without taking a shower and putting on clean clothes. Right, right. 
Yeah, it's all relative. That's exactly what we talked about. So, Phil, I don't know if you can answer this, but long term, can you see or have an idea where we might be going in terms of youth and the outdoors and eco sports? Will we see a shift from the the competitive contact type sports? Will we see a trend where there's more of a shift of people seeking outdoor type adventures. Yeah, I mentioned my prediction before. I stand up in front of a class of 110 students and say the same thing twice a year for, you know, it's now six years, that I think that uh, contact sports are going to be reined in or or changed drastically. I don't think football and, um, you know, there are other sports. That women's soccer have high rates of concussions. Uh, men's wrestling have high rates of concussions, believe it or not. Um, those sports will not be the same in five or 10 years once the, uh, diagnostic tests come out. And I think that it can only, it it will only, um, result in more people moving away from, uh, ultra competitivenesses and all, and, and the risks of these kinds of injuries as they become more and more apparent to people. I mean, there are, uh, studies that are demonstrating that somewhere between 96 and 99% of uh, professional and college football players, and I think they even included high school in one of those studies, are are showing up with, with uh, you know, this kind of dementia, this kind of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And it doesn't require playing for all that long. So once more and more is known about this and the dangers uh, are apparent uh, before someone passes away, uh, you know, I think there are going to be parents and people that are just going to say, I can have a good time. I can get my exercise. I can get my cardiovascular uh, activity. And uh, maybe maybe I'd just rather watch this on television and, and not have to take the risk myself. So, yeah, I, th- I, I think the trend is, is, if not going to take off, is going to increase steadily. Yeah. And, and just for the record, for people listening – Going outdoors isn't without its risk. There's inherent risk to some of to most of those activities as well. But you're reducing it. It's not requiring running it to you know two people running at each other. And part of what's going to happen is at some point their heads are going to collide or their head might hit a wrestling mat. Uh, but it provides it, well, it reduces the opportunities of of head trauma. Right. And that's why those sports that I mentioned before are usually categorized because these extreme sports like cliff diving and, you know, jumping off of high, high, you know, uh, places clearly and, and, you know, and ski jumping and things like that, even if they're not competitive, uh, can result in, you know, concussions, you know, you're running the mill, you know, wide receiver going over the middle and getting knocked out and being, you know, helped off the field. That's considered a, a mild traumatic brain injury. It's considered mild, even if even if the player is knocked out, as long as he gets up and recovers in a reasonable period. But many of these extreme sports, even some of the ones you're describing, can end up with more severe traumatic brain injuries. So yeah, it's not without its risks, but certainly um, the the physics of it are much different. Right, you could. Talk to a hundred rock climbers who have never had anything more than maybe a blister or a scratch, but talk to a hundred guys that played college or high school football, and they probably all got a story about a head injury at some time or another, where they at least were a little fuzzy or a little slow getting up. And, and I and I and I 
ask my class, <clears throat> you know, I have 110 students, probably <clears throat> a third will be varsity athletes in Division One. Another third will have played high school sports. And the other third are weekend warriors, you know, uh, you know, just play organized intramural sports. I don't think there's very many students who take my class who haven't played somewhere and some point. And when I asked the question, how many of you have had one documented concussion? Probably 80% of the class raises their hand. And then when I ask how many have had two, some people lower their hand. And by the time I get to three or four, there's still, you know, a substantial number of people with their hands up. Wow. And these so, are college students, right? Yeah. Yeah. These are young, these are young people, uh, somewhere, you know, 17, 18, 19, right. 20 years old. Right. This isn't a 40 year old so, retired football player. Right. Exactly. And then my, my follow-up comment is if you've had two diagnosed concussions, you've had 20 micro concussions. And that's really where the study is going on right now. How many micro concussions equal a concussion? How many micro concussions can lead to, you know, a degenerative brain disease? So it's, it's a serious uh, emerging field, even though the NFL is given millions of dollars, even though you know, there, there's a lot of people that have been affected by it um, in a lot of different sports. It's at an infancy. And again, to answer your question, I think it's going to lead people to uh, low contact sports and ultimately to uh, these kinds of non-competitive sports that are, you know, increasingly um, the information about them are increasingly available to the average person where they weren't, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot with this question here, but if I go to you as a parent of a 12 year old who I want to have, who I'm thinking about putting on a football team or local traveling football team, but I'm really not sure I'm, I have these concerns. What would you, would you have any advice for me? Would you be in a position to have any, to give me advice on this? Oh, absolutely. And we talk about this in the class and I've had the head uh, trainer for the university come in who deals with the, the young athletes when they get knocked out or if they actually only, I say that, but the truth is only about 10% of the time does a, a, a person lose consciousness when they have a concussion. So, you know, the, the, the visualization of knocked out is actually a little bit exaggerated, but uh, I, I, I lost a lot of guest speakers, uh, their, their thoughts about this. Um, I've had a, um, a physical therapist who, uh, who has a doctorate in physical therapy who knows a lot about this. And I've asked them all the same question, and there's mixed answers, but my answer is absolutely not. Um, I would not let any uh, kid under 14 years old, at a minimum, put on a helmet and take a chance of having their head knocked around. Now you say, well, what about Little League Baseball? You can get hit with a, with a pitch. It's, it's very rare. And even with that, you know, they don't throw as hard in, in Little League. But um, no, uh, I'll give you a direct answer. I would not let... Uh, any child who I had any responsibility for under 14 years old play uh, tackle football at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Phil, thanks so much for uh, giving up your time and coming on the podcast with us. Uh, uh, it's, it's been it's been very nice. Thank you. Uh, thanks again. You're listening to Phil Lewis. Uh, remember, if you like this and you're listening on a platform where you can hit the like button, please do. Or if you can leave a comment, we'd love to hear from you. Once again, thanks, Phil. Have a good night and. Everybody else stay safe out there.
This episode of Pop Bear Hikes has been brought to you by Avalon Publicity. Avalon Publicity, increasing the digital footprint of content creators and skilled professionals via website development and social media services. For more information about Avalon Publicity, go to their website, avalonbusiness.org. That's avalonbusiness.org.